Can we praise God Summit Church together? Every time I see myself on video now, I think I'm speaking live from the Rainforest Cafe. Um, Summit Church, we've had an extraordinary past few days as just a little bit less than 3,000 volunteers served in 47 different projects um, in eight, uh, around eight different campuses of the Summit Church around the Triangle. That's counting the downtown Raleigh campus, which is, uh, which is on its way. Um, we catered appreciation lunches for foster care workers, for public school teachers and police officers. We threw baby showers for, uh, for single moms, and uh, we um, upfitted pregnancy resource centers Um, Small groups remodeled and landscaped schools and homeless shelters. Summit volunteers went into schools, into prisons. They packed Bibles and care packages that would be sent literally all over the world. Um, Stories just now are beginning to come in of just um, things that happened through interactions. One of the um, teachers at East Chapel Hill High School um, said uh, that she said, I am coming to your church on Sunday just to say thank you for what you've done at our school. So, um, if you were there at East Chapel Hill High School, because that's where we meet on the weekend, uh, welcome. And uh, we, are, we are glad and honored to be a part of this community with you and to be serving it. Uh, the women's prison inmates gave our volunteer team there a standing ovation. And uh, one of the prison workers said, in all my years of prison work, I have never um, seen that happen um, in a prison. Uh, you probably saw in the video, you saw some car washing going on. That was at Hillendale Elementary School um, where we were doing some stuff for them. And uh, uh, I had no idea that was going on. I would have taken my car over there and done that project and parked it with the teachers. But um, one of the teachers said, she said, wait, wait you're going you're gonna to wash our cars too? Is this for real? Is this a joke? Um, Summit, I want to tell you, thank you. Um, thank you for um, being a part of this to, um, to make the gospel more tangible um, around the community. You literally were all over the triangle this week. I want to remind you and I want to remind our community that um, maybe here this weekend as a result of that, uh, I want to remind you that this is just a sign for us. Um, We don't do it because we feel like we have the answers for the community within our church. We don't do it because we feel like we're in a position um, where we've got it together and so now we can help people who don't. We don't feel like we're more worthy and that's why we're doing this. Um, These things are assigned to us of the greatest gift that was ever given and that is when God took upon himself our sin, our wickedness, and he took it into himself and he died for it. Um, We are all beggars. We're lame. We are dead in sin. And Christ gave the greatest gift by saving us from our sin. And it just makes sense to us that if we've received great grace, that we ought to be people who demonstrate that by, by pouring out love for those that are around us. Now, I will tell you, we don't always do that well. In fact, quite often, we usually think of ourselves rather self-centeredly. Um, but our deepest desire is to be able to point to a God who, though he was rich, for our sake became poor, so that we, through his poverty, would become rich. And so our prayer is that your eyes would be upon him and upon the grace that he offers, the gift that he has given, that maybe is demonstrated in some small, incomplete way through just ways that we are serving the, uh, the community. Some of these 47 projects that we are part of, as I mentioned last week, are ones we are involved with all year long. These were not one-off things for us. Um, and so we want to pray for the continued ministry that takes place in the schools and the prisons by, um, by Summit members and many other places around the Triangle. So would you, at all of our campuses, would you pray? Um, would you bow your heads? And let's pray together and offer this to God. God, we do this as a way of saying you're worthy. You're worthy. You're worthy of our highest acts of sacrifice. You're worthy of our most intense praise. God, you're not honored through self-centered living. You're not 
honored God through complacency and apathetic praise. So we offer the fruit and the sacrifice of our lips, and we offer the sacrifice of our lives. God, as I mentioned, we don't do this because we feel like we have the answer. We don't. We can't even fix our own families. God, we do it because we want to be able to point to you. We want people's eyes to be directed to the great grace that comes from heaven, the steadfast love that is higher than the heavens or above the earth. We want to be able to direct attention, God, to the one who took upon himself the chastisement of our peace, who was wounded for our transgressions, that by his stripes we could be healed. So God, may the eyes of our community be directed toward him. May he be glorified. May he be large in their eyes. May he be lifted up so that he could draw this community to himself. We commit this to you in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you would, uh, at all of our campuses, take out your Bibles. And uh, that's what we do now if you're a guest here at our church. This is a time where one of us will get up and we will open the Word of God and we will um, explain it uh, as best as we can. So if you have a Bible, Acts chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible um, at our first time guest tent, and when you leave at any campus, if you just ask them for one, they will give you one. And if they run out of Summit Bibles to give you, then they will give you their personal one. Um, I did not check with them uh, before I said that, but I just feel like they would do that. And if they won't do it, you come to me and I'll give you one of my personal ones. Um, Acts chapter 4, if I told you, you can turn your Bible on or open it. Um, you know, my, my pastor, when I grew up, used to say that the most blessed sound to him was hearing the ruffling of God's pages, or God's word as people open their Bible. I never get to hear that. But I'll be satisfied with the warm glow of God's word on your face as you, as you turn your phone on. We are studying the book of Acts, and we are seeing that Christianity did not start out as an institution. It didn't start out as a building program. It started out as a movement around a message. It was a very unlikely movement because um, those that started it had no money, they had no power, um, they had no armies, they didn't even have, they didn't even have um, people in strategic positions of influence by which they could sway the society. They weren't writing for the New York Times, they weren't serving in Congress. Um, every movement has heroes. Heroes are people who act in certain ways that inspire the rest of us. What you're going to see today is you're going to see inside of the heart of the first Christian heroes who, though they had very little to work with, they were truly heroic. You're going to see what made them heroes, and you're going to see how as a result of their heroism, the gospel swept the world without money, without armies, without power, and you and I are sitting here today because of that. My hope in this is that you're going to see that this kind of heart can be yours. You see, these first Christian heroes didn't start out that way. I mean, just think about Peter. He's timid. He's fearful. He's unfaithful. Fled from Jesus at the first sign of danger and denied even knowing him. But he became a hero through his experience with the gospel. And I want you to see that you can become just like him. Because if you believe what he believed and you experience what he experienced, then you can become what he became. That's what I hope that you'll see. My hope is that you're going to become a type of hero for those that are around you the way that these first Christians were for us. You see, even though the gospel movement has swept the world, for many of us, it has not yet swept through our local communities. And when I say local communities, I mean very local. I mean like it hasn't yet swept through your family. It hasn't yet swept through your school, your high school, your college campus, your generation of college students, your workplace, your neighborhood. And that's what this is all about, right? I mean, we're really grateful that the gospel has swept the world and that Jesus has built his church, 
but has it swept through our community? I can't be responsible for everybody. I can't be responsible for every generation, but I can be responsible for my generation, and I want to be a kind of, if I could use this language, hero for my generation. In this passage, you're going to see what real heroes look like. Let me give you a warning. They're not flashy. In fact, what you're going to see is quiet and behind the scenes. We'd have no way of knowing about it if the Holy Spirit hadn't recorded it for us, but you're going to see how they responded to threat. You're going to see how they responded to danger, and you're going to see what made them heroes. All right, Acts chapter 4. We're going to begin in verse 23, but let me give you the context first in case you uh, either weren't here last week or you got a bad memory. Um, Acts 4, 23, what happened is the apostles had been preaching. There was a miracle, um, and so they were put in prison, but they, the, the, the rulers had to release them because the people, um, it was just too you know, popular what was happening. And so the, the rulers threatened them and said, you can't do this anymore, or we're going to do something much worse to you next time. We'll put you back in prison. We will kill you, whatever. All right? So what do you think they did after receiving that threat? <laughs> well, let's just ask this. What would we have done at the Summit Church if that would have happened? I mean, typically our response is going to be, you know, Peter, you got, Peter and John can never be together again, right? Because we can't have them both taken out at the same time, so they got to be separate. Um, we got to take out a big insurance policy, so if they get, you know, we got we to be able to hire somebody else to come in and do it. Um, you know, we got to put a fleet of Escalades around them and armor bearers uh, so that they cannot be touched. Um, we got to, or maybe this, we've got to rethink the message a little bit because this whole, like, you crucified Jesus and he's going to hold you accountable kind of thing isn't playing well. Um, so maybe oh, prodigal son, let's lead with the prodigal son. That really seems to connect with people. Um, that's probably what we would have, have typically done. But look at what they did, verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God. Notice that in the first sign of danger, their instinctive reflex is what? Is prayer. You see, when you are aware of how much the Spirit is actually doing it through you, then prayer becomes the natural response, not because you're commanded to, and not because the leaders call a prayer meeting. It's just because it's like, breathing to you, right? I mean, that's the analogy I've used with you before. I've told you that the least disciplined person listening to me right now, whoever it is, whichever one of you can't study, you procrastinate, right? You you never get your stuff done on time. You you never work out. You never eat alfalfa sprouts. Whichever one of you is in the most least disciplined category does not be reminded to breathe every day. Nobody ever calls up a friend and says, hey, I got to have a good day today. I got to breathe. So I need you to hold me accountable. Can you call me in an hour and text me and just ask me, if you, have I breathed? Nobody does that, right? Because your body craves air. And you don't need to be commanded to breathe because it just rises up internally and you naturally breathe. When you understand how desperate you are on the Spirit of God to do anything, then prayer will become as natural to you as breathing. And see, a lot of you have a problem maintaining a prayer life, and what you're looking for is some new trick, some new habit that you can correct. But see, you're trying to correct an internal problem with an external fix, and that'll never work. Because what needs to happen is you need to grow in your awareness of how desperate you are in the Spirit of God. You need to actually start walking with the Spirit of God. Because if you started walking with the Spirit of God, then prayer will become natural. Prayerlessness is a sign that you're disconnected from the Spirit. One of the things I do every single morning when I get up is I remind myself of the words of Jesus in John 15, 5, that apart from me, I can do nothing. That means I can't be a good dad, I can't be a good husband, I can't do my job right, I can't treat other people right, I can't do anything without the Spirit of God. 
Now, I'm not saying to you I'm a perfect model of what a, a man of prayer ought to be, but I can tell you that that starts me out on a day where I begin to pray much more reflexively and instinctively because I begin to crave the Spirit of God's power in everything that I'm doing. Prayerlessness is a sign, not that you're not disciplined enough, it's a sign that you're disconnected from the Spirit of God. All right? They were not, so they went right to prayer. So what did they say? What did they say? Let's look at it. Sovereign Lord. Sovereign means in control of everything. Who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why do the Gentiles rage? Why do the peoples plot against us in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. They saw what was happening as a fulfillment of a prophecy. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, in other words, everybody, to do whatever your hand and your plan had, what's the next word, church? Predestined to take place. So now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants, stop, stop, don't look up here, look up here. Don't look at the next word. What do you think they asked for? What do you think they, what would we have asked for? Traveling mercies, right? Grant them protection, uh, please change out all the rulers and get us some guys in there who will, you know, be more sympathetic to our movement. You think that's what they prayed for? Look back down. Grant that we could continue to speak your word with all, what's that word? Boldness. Boldness? They asked for more boldness? I mean, isn't that what got them into this mess? Is boldness? What do you pray for in persecution? What do you pray for in pain? Typically, we pray for protection. Or we pray for deliverance from the pain, and I'm sure they wanted those things. And by the way, I'm sure they eventually got around to asking for them, because there's nothing wrong with asking for those things. But before they prayed for those things, they prayed for God to make them bold within the circumstances. In fact, if you're taking notes, write this down. Before they asked for a positive outcome around them, they prayed for a faithful spirit within them. Before they prayed for a positive outcome around them, they prayed for a faithful spirit within them. They prayed for faith to be able to respond in a faithful way to whatever the situation would be. They prayed. That's what they asked for. Give us boldness, and verse 30, while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they're all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they continue to speak the word of God with even more boldness. Heroes. Heroes. Because they prayed this way, because they responded this way, the gospel would continue to spread around the world, and eventually it would come all the way to us. Their heroism led to our salvation. So here is my question for you. Where does boldness and courage like that, where does that come from? Because I dare say, just in my knowledge of you and people like us, we want more courage. We love to be bold. People tell me that all the time. I just wish, and they think it's a personality thing. Man, I wish I was like you. I wish I was bold like you. I wish I was an extrovert. I wish I always knew what to say. Where does courage come from? Where does, where does boldness come from? You just kind of will it up inside you and just, you know, I'm just going to do it. I'm going to get myself. Is that what you do? Or how about this? I've heard this strategy before. Visualize a positive outcome and then that will help you be bold. You ever heard this strategy? I actually got this off a website. Listen to this. When you feel fear about something, first take a deep breath and relax. <sighs> After you relax, visualize doing the behavior that you fear successfully. 
see yourself doing the thing that you've been afraid of. Imagine yourself in that situation without all the unpleasant consequences that might happen. Enjoy the feeling of mastery that comes with having dealt successfully with a situation that has up until now made you fearful, and then you will feel more confident. Is that it? (laughs) No, let me be honest. There's an element of that strategy that works. It's called positive thinking. I know people who use that frequently and it kind of works for it, but there's a problem. And that the problem is, is even if you visualize good things happening, bad things can still happen. So no matter how much you visualize positive things happening, bad things can still happen, which means if you don't even allow the possibility that bad things could happen, you're delusional. So in order to become courageous, you got to become delusional. And I just don't really feel like that's a good strategy is to say, I'm going to be courageous by being delusional. I, there's got to be a better way, right? Well, there is. And you'll see five elements in their prayer that made them bold that can be true of you. Number one, they believed in God's sovereignty in their trial. They believed in God's sovereignty in their trial. See verse 24, sovereign Lord told you the word sovereign means in control of everything. Truly in this city we're gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, all these people, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. The apostles are not looking at the situation going about, man, Judas totally messed everything up. That came out of nowhere. We had this good thing going. All of a sudden, Judas come, betrays us. Well, what's going on with Caiaphas, the high priest? If he'd have stuck up for us, then it would. No, they saw all these things as perfectly controlled by a sovereign God who was working all things according to the plan that he had laid out to glorify Jesus and get the gospel around the world. What if you believed that kind of sovereignty was over your pain? What if your first response in whatever painful situation you find yourself in was this, what is God's purpose in this pain? My friend, listen, I am not trying to tell you that God is delighting in your pain. I'm not even saying he's the one that is causing it. But what I'm saying is, what if you recognize that all the events of your life, God had a sovereign purpose, and that purpose was to glorify Jesus? And before you ask God to resolve that pain, you at least first stop and ask God what it was he wanted to do through that pain, because he was a sovereign God that allowed it to happen. Can I tell you one of my favorite verses on this? Psalm 46 in. It's a verse you probably know when I start it. In fact, we'll do a little test here. Be still and know that I, that I what? That I'm God. Okay, about three quarters of you know that. Do you know the next verse? So a few of you do, okay? Don't run it for everybody. (laughs) Um, Be still and know that I'm God. I will be exalted among the nations. Can I tell you this is one of the things that I'm genuinely ticked off at what the Christian subculture has done to this verse. Because we always use the first phrase of that verse and we put it on a coffee cup, right? So it's got a little picture of a, you know, like a Bible and a rainbow and a baby, naked baby angel playing a harp right? And we drink it with our coffee in the morning, and we, and we look at it, and we have this serene feeling, be still and know that I'm God. And we never look at the next phrase. It's not just have this serene moment with your cup of Folgers in the morning. The point is, in whatever painful situation you're in, God is exalting himself in the nations. So I can know that in whatever circumstances I find myself, God's got a greater purpose. I know that if I lost my job, God has a purpose for that in the Great Commission. I know that if I go through some kind of disability or disease, I know that it's painful, but I know I can be still and know that he is God, that he will be exalted among the nations, and that he turns my tragedy into his triumphs, that he has dominion over my difficulties. And so I know that in whatever situation I'm at, he's going to do what he promised to do. And I can be still sometimes and just know that he is God. I love that little phrase, be still, because I'm a fixer like a lot of you men. 
then I just like to fix the problem. And there's nothing wrong. God made you that way. But what if before you got to fixing the problem, you asked God what his purpose was in that problem? You see, listen, faith during the problem is more important than fixing the problem. And I'm not saying you don't get around to fixing it. I'm just saying that maybe you stop in whatever situation and you just said, God, I know that you're sovereign. Sovereign Lord, all these things happen because you were directing them. And I'm going to be still and I'm going to know that you're God, that you're going to be exalted among the nations. You see, on the flip side, you'll start doing that with your blessings. You'll start saying, God, you gave me this blessing. You gave me this new job. You gave me this raise. You, you gave me this thing. What was your purpose in giving me that? What if your first question was not, well, how can this new situation benefit me? What if you saw yourself as a part of God's mission and you said whatever blessings or whatever cursings come into my, not cursings, but whatever bad things come into my life, they're all there, part of God's purpose to exalt himself among the nations. So the first thing I want to ask in this raise that I just got, if this is you, you're going to say, what is God's purpose in that? Why did God give me this blessing? Why did he give it to me? Maybe it was for his purposes and not mine. See, that's what I want you to start thinking about as you get into these things. I want you to be still and know that he is God. Number two, they knew the scriptures. They knew the scriptures. One, they believed in God's sovereign purpose and his mission. Number two, they knew the scriptures. Did you see how the first thing out of their mouths in prayer was an Old Testament psalm where they claimed the promises of God? You know what that shows you? It shows you they knew them. They knew what to pray in the various situations because they were so bathed in the word of God that when life shook them, it just came out. See? They didn't have time to run, consult their Bibles and get out their concordance and look something up. They just knew it. I've told you this before, the book that you hold in your hands, that Bible is a book of promises. In fact, sometimes I wish we'd just write that on the cover. The book of promises, over 3,000 promises given to the people of God. Can I tell you something? I want to know every single one of them. Because I want to make sure that in whatever situation I'm in, I am asking God for the promise that he has given. I love what Eugene Peterson says about this. True prayer is not just talking to God. True prayer is answering God. God's already spoken in his word. Prayer is just a response to what he has said. Peyton Manning, uh, NFL quarterback, for those of you that are totally disconnected from the world. Um, Peyton Manning... (laughs) one of the best quarterbacks around right now, they say that, I read an article a couple weeks ago on him, they said that he spends, get this, more time in the film room than any other quarterback, not just currently, but any other quarterback that has ever lived. Any spare moment that man gets, he is down, they say, in the basement watching these films of these other teams. And they say the result is, in the middle of a play, when things go differently than planned, he knows exactly what the defense is doing, and he knows exactly where things are going to end up. If you've ever watched him play, you've seen this happen. He knows more than the coach. He knows more than the guy that is up there in the little, you know, box that's watching and radioing him stuff or radioing the coach stuff. He knows more than all of them because he had studied these plays so many times that he knows when that person goes over there, that means this guy's going to come here and that means that guy over there is going to be open. I I, I read that and I thought, that's how I want to be with the word of God because I don't have time in the midst of a bad situation. I don't have time to just go run and figure it out. I just want to know that whatever happens to me, when the play changes, the promises of God spring out of my heart, onto my lips. See, when life cuts me, I want to bleed God's word. Because I, listen, I want, and I want you to see the world through the lens of gospel promises. Because when the word of God is in your heart and the word of God is on your lips, then the spirit of God will be working through you to bring the power of God into your situation. See, number three, 
They were in awe of the greatest hero. Number three, they were in awe of the greatest hero. You're going to see in the next chapter that God answers their prayer for more boldness, and so they get in more trouble. And this time, when Peter is defending themselves to the rulers, he says this, chapter 5, verse 30, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging on a tree. Have you noticed, by the way, that Peter seems to like that phrase? Every time he gets a chance to talk to somebody, he's like, hey, by the way, you killed him, right? So whatever. Verse 31, God exalted him in his right hand as leader. That's a great word. I'll come back to that. In fact, if you underline stuff in your Bible, underline it. If you don't, then just hold your finger on the iPad and let it, and it's a highlight. Um, a leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. The word for leader there is the word in Greek, archegos. Um, it may sound like a weird word to you, but you actually would recognize it. Arch means highest. Ego means me or person. Highest person or the way we would say that is ubermensch or superman. He used a word there. It's a very unusual word in Greek because it meant superhero. It's the word they use for Hercules. Hercules was the archego because he was so strong. He was their superhero. Now Peter takes that word and he applies the superhero status to Jesus. Now you know what's significant about that? Jesus is totally different than Hercules. He's very different than every other superhero we've ever come up with. You want to know why? Superheroes become superheroes through their massive strength. But Peter just said that Jesus was a superhero because he died in weakness. In fact, he leveraged his power not to crush his enemies. He leveraged his power to die in weakness for his enemies so that he could reconcile his enemies back to himself. And see, that fundamentally changed how the apostles saw themselves. See, they weren't people that were supposed to dominate the world in power. They were people that were to offer their lives as a sacrifice in weakness because that's how God brings salvation to the world. You see, they believed that if their superhero Jesus had not only risked his life but actually gave his life for other salvation, then it made sense to them that that's what they should do too. They ought to give their lives as a sacrifice for the world. They believed that if God had raised Jesus from the dead, they believed that whatever the world threw at them, they'd overcome it. Because they're like, hey, you killed Jesus and God resurrected him. So well, if you kill us, what's going to happen to us? You throw us in prison, what's that gonna, how's that going to stop things? God loves it when you, when you do this kind of stuff because it just gives him a power, gives him the ability to show off his power even more. They believe that in the Holy Spirit they had been given the greatest possession. They believe that they had been given the God who had saved them and the God who brought Jesus out of the grave now lived inside of them. And so they start saying things like, hey, if God's for us, who can be against us? He that did not spare his own son, how will he not also freely give us all things? Nothing can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus, not height or depth or your power or Rome's power or anybody's power, right? If God is for us, who can be against us? All things are going to work together for good to those who love God or are called according to his purpose. We're more than conquerors, and we're not going to pick up a sword. It's the power of resurrection that's inside of us. So death works in us, but life works in you, because that's just how God works. You see, if you believe the gospel, and if you're in all the greatest hero, you become bold. How could you not? Right? In the cross, you've been given the greatest grace, so you become gracious to others. In the resurrection, you've been given the greatest promise, so you have confidence. In the Holy Spirit, you've been given the greatest possession, so you've got nothing to lose. And if you've got the greatest grace and the greatest promise and the greatest possession, then you'll become bold as a matter of instinct, not as a matter of discipline. See? Number four. They possessed a generous spirit. They possess a generous spirit. Let me show you where you can see this. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. They had everything in common, they shared everything. 
With great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work among them all. There was not a single needy person among them, not one, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold, and they laid it at the, the apostles' feet. And from there it was distributed to each as any had need. Here's what I want you to see from that. Their boldness and witness was an extension of the generosity of lifestyle. You see, their boldness got them in situations where to be bold and to be faithful to the gospel meant that they were going to lose their lives. But because they were so naturally accustomed to just sharing their lives, when they had to choose between personal safety and faithful witness, they always went with faithful witness because they learned not to hold on to the things that God had given them too tightly. You see, they weren't selectively generous. Because if you are a truly generous person, you're never just generous in one area of your life. And again, I don't want to smack you, because I'm like this too. But if you're generous in only a few areas but not others, it shows that you're not really a generous person. You've just got a guilt trip about a handful of things. So if you're a generous person, you're generous with your life, your possessions, you're generous with your time, you're generous with your forgiveness, you're generous with your witness, right? You see? That's what they were. They were just generous people, and they're like, hey, if you take our lives from us, we'd still think it's more important for you to know the gospel than for us to be safe. When I served as a missionary in Southeast Asia, I've told you before about a situation where my team got in a lot of trouble. Um, four of my friends were put into prison. I was put under house arrest. I would remember how spiritually low I was during that time because I was afraid, and I wanted to be home so badly. And one of the things that the Holy Spirit used to pick me up out of that pit was he gave me a, a vision, small v, gave me a vision of a friend of mine who I'd gotten to know who was very lost over there. And basically the Holy Spirit asked me this question in my heart, is that guy's soul worth it? Is his soul worth you being over here away from friends and family? Is it worth you being over here risking your life? Because I'm not promising you you're going to get out of here alive, alive. Is it worth your life to save his soul? Now, I'd love to tell you I just sprung up, was like, yes, Lord. You know, no, I mean, it was, anything was more of a meager response. But see, that was the beginning of God sowing real boldness as opposed to bravado in my life, because there's a big difference in those two. And bravado is what you get by personality. Boldness is what you get by the Holy Spirit. And see, what God did is he then put me down to a place where basically he said, when I came, I didn't deliver my son, but my son died so you could be saved. So I'm not promising I'm going to deliver you either. You might go to the same place that Jesus did. But because I used his generosity and his sacrifice as your salvation, maybe you're going to have the chance to do that for somebody else. Summit, can I just be real with us for a minute? Many of us wither at the first sign that somebody's going to not like us, somebody's going to think we're weird, or somebody's going to talk about us to friends if we come across as too bold of a witness. And I got no word for you except you need to repent. And I'm not coming down on you because I'm there half the time too. But I'm saying we serve a Savior who not only risked his life, but actually gave his life so that you could be saved, and you wither at the first sign that somebody's going to think that you're a, little, or you're, a little, you're a little too excited or you're a little too much of a Jesus freak. Really? Really? What did he do to save your soul? And you're not going to deal with a little, a little opposition. You're not going to deal with a little gossip. They scorned him so badly, they stripped him naked and made him die alone in the sun, and you don't want people talking about you around the water cooler. You need to repent. I need to repent because half the time I'm motivated like, well, what are they going to think about me if I do this? 
Number five. They were filled repeatedly by the Holy Spirit. They're filled repeatedly by the Holy Spirit. You see that in answer to their prayer, God filled them with the Holy Spirit. He came in so powerfully, he shook the place where they were meeting. Now, let me first help you see what's going on with that, because I want you to get the significance of that. All right, so every time in the Old Testament when God came down to earth, the place shook, right? Isaiah 6, when God comes into the temple, it shakes. When God comes down on Mount Sinai, the, the place shook. And usually that's a terrifying experience, and people cower in fear. Now the Holy Spirit's coming, and they're not cowering in fear. They're rising up in boldness. Why? What's the significance of that? Well, because when Jesus died, Matthew 27, there was an earthquake. When Jesus was resurrected, it says there was a kind of small earthquake. What's happening is Jesus received the earthquake of God's judgment and the earthquake of God's terror so that I could receive the earthquake of his power. So when the Spirit of God comes upon us, we now shake not with fear like they did in the Old Testament. We shake with boldness like they do in Acts 4. We shake with worship because we are amazed that the God who saved us, the God who is so holy that not one sin could enter into his presence, that God now lives inside of us. And if that God is for us, who could be against us? How could I not shake with boldness and power? You see where it says that the place is shaken? The next phrase is, and they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. The more the place was shaken, the less the Christians were. The more they were shaken by the Holy Spirit, the less they were shaken by the threats of their enemies. And they needed this kind of experience often. They needed this kind of experience often. You see, let me, again, just get real with you for a minute. They thought they needed to be filled with the Holy Spirit repeatedly. When's the last time you asked for the fullness of the Holy Spirit? So Peter and John feel like they need it all the time, but you, superhero, oh no, you don't need it. You're like, oh, I'm saved, I'm good. Really? Here's Peter and John, they are dependent, they're desperate on fullness of the Holy Spirit, and you don't need it. Here's a little theology lesson. You got the Holy Spirit when you got saved, you got baptized, one baptism, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, by one spirit, we're all baptized into one body. You got all the Holy Spirit at that point, but there are frequent, repeated fillings throughout the book of Acts, and you got to seek those because they are the air you breathe, they are food for your soul, and without those things, you will never be bold. That's how they were bold, if they were filled with the Holy You're like, well, what's the, what, what, what's the fullness of the Holy Spirit? What's that like? The analogy I've used with you for years, and I think it's just so clear and helpful, for me at least, it comes from a Puritan named Thomas Goodwin. And Thomas Goodwin says, here's what it's like. Um, he says, he uses the example of a father walking along with a young son. Um, my son is three years old, so, you know, that would be a good one for me. So I've got, you know, th- my three-year-old son, Adam, and he's walking beside me. And then I look down at him, and I just get overwhelmed with this feeling of how cute he is. And so I pick him up, and I spin him around, and I, you know, throw him up in the air safely and catch him. And, uh, and I blow raspberries in his neck, and I'm just like, who's your daddy? You know, with this little thing we go through. And, and he's like, you're my daddy. You know, and it's just this awesome moment. And then the moment passes, and I put him down, and I hold his hand. We, we keep walking. Now, question. Was he any more my son when I picked him up than he was when I was just holding his hand? No, legally, not one bit more, right? He was every bit as much legally my son then as he was when I picked him up, but he felt his sonship more in that moment than he did when he was walking on the ground. The fullness of the Holy Spirit does not change your status as a son or daughter. It does not make you closer to God. That is fully settled legally in Christ. But what it does is it increases your awareness of your sonship So listen to what Paul says, 
Paul says, I pray that you might have your mind open to how wide, how high, how deep, and how long is the love of God, because then you will be filled with all the fullness of God. So in other words, the fullness of the Holy Spirit is when your mind has been opened to how glorious God is, how great of a father he is, how great his grace is, how much of a sinner you were, how close he is to you. And when that feeling floods your heart and you are spun around in his arms, then you come down from that experience bold and you are ready to preach the gospel because you know the intimacy with your father. Does that make sense? They needed that often. They needed it often. And I would say that I look at many of you, and if we just had an honest moment, I said, when's the last time you asked for the fullness of the Holy Spirit? The question would not be, when was the last time? The question would be, whenever have I asked for the fullness of the Holy Spirit? You see, I just feel like you need to be asking for it all the time. I try to, you need to, because without him, you can do nothing. So five things that gave them boldness that are going to give you boldness. They believed in God's sovereign purpose in their trials. Number two, they knew the scriptures. Number three, they were in all their greatest hero. Number four, they had a generous spirit. Number five, they were frequently filled by the Holy Spirit. So let me use my last little bit of time here to ask you this question. How do you apply this? I was thinking about that as I got to the end of the message because I don't like that I'm the kind of person who always gives to-do lists, but I am the kind of person who always gives to-do lists, so you know, I just have to deal with that. Um, how do you, what do you do this week as a result of this? How, how do you apply it? I, I was first tempted to tell you some glorious stories of people who've gone overseas and given their lives boldly because the gospel was worth it. I was tempted to do that. And by the way, there are a bunch of you at all of our campuses that that is exactly how you need to apply this message. God's going to lead you overseas and you're going to be bold. And you're going to give up your life so other people can know the gospel. But That's not the main way that I thought we should end it, because while that applies to some of you, it does not apply to all of you. I was second tempted to tell you some stories about, like, for example, a girl that I knew in college who was a sophomore, um, very introverted, very soft-spoken, who just got filled with the gospel and filled with the Holy Spirit, and we were planning this big evangelistic rally, think like an FCA kind of thing, and um, we're in the lunchroom the day before, or the day of it happening, and we're eating lunch, and she's sitting beside me, and I'm talking to a friend, when all of a sudden I hear somebody standing on the, on the table next to me, stamping her foot, I turn and look at this girl, and she's getting the whole lunchroom quiet, 500 people in this lunchroom, He's, she's getting all of them quiet, and I'm thinking, she's lost her mind. Right? And she says, hey, I wanted to, I'm sorry to interrupt your lunch, but tonight we're going to have this thing where we're going to tell you about Jesus. Jesus has changed my life. I think he can change yours too. I think you should come. Now, I, I was tempted to tell you a story like that one, <laughs> which I just did. Um, I was tempted to do that. And there are a few of you, maybe there's some sophomore girl listening to me right now, that that is exactly how you should apply it. But not all of you are going to do that. <laughs> right? Because the idea of boldness for some of you, you don't know where to start. The whole concept freaks you out, doesn't it? Because you get these images of that kind of thing. You're like, is that what I do? Is that, is that bold? Or, or you get the image. Remember, have I told you the story of the American Airlines pilot? It's a true story. 2004, comes back from a mission trip on, with his church, totally fired up about the gospel. So he gets in the cockpit you know, of his commercial airliner. Have I told you this? This is true. You go look it up. 2004, um, he, he gets on the, on the intercom. Um, for a little captain speech, and he says, I just got back from a mission trip in Venezuela, and I am totally fired up about the gospel. He says, he says how many of you, he says, right now, um, how many of you are born-again Christians on this flight? Raise your hand. So, you know, a handful of people raise their hand in the, back in the cabin. He says, for the rest of you, I have a question. If you died today, if this plane goes down in midair, <laughs> do you know for sure that you would go to heaven? 
If the answer to that is no, you should talk to one of the people that just raised their hand on this flight. And you're like, I couldn't do that at my work. I would get fired. And that guy, by the way, got fired. So yeah, you probably couldn't do that at your job. Because that's not what you want your pilot doing when you get ready to take off. You're like, is that, is that boldness? Is that what we're talking about? Let's be honest. When it comes to boldness, we're, we need baby steps, don't we? So I'm going to give you boldness for beginners. Can you not be insulted by that? Let's just do boldness for beginners. I'm going to give you some stuff that every single one of you could do this week that would be your first step toward boldness. Here we go. I'll give you a handful of them here. A, saying something when saying nothing would be easier. Saying something when saying, you know, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You have that moment. You probably didn't know it was the Spirit of God, but when the Spirit of God puts something in your heart that you really ought to say to somebody, and it's just a whole lot easier to not warn them because you don't want to put the relationship at risk, and you say nothing, and the way that you can be bold this week is by saying something when saying nothing would be easier. Letter B, taking advantage of opportunities when they present themselves. Offering to pray for somebody. You're having that conversation at work, and it comes up, and you just say, hey, I don't want to make this weird, but can I pray for you right now? Can I tell you one of the best witnesses you can have? is letting somebody hear you talk to your father about their problem. Because they hear tenderness, they hear your faith as you do that. And by the way, that's an easy way to preach the gospel to them. I do that all the time. I I pray for waiters and waitresses all the time. People that I've never met, and I just pray the gospel to them. Lord, this person has told me this, and I want to pray about that. God, I also want you to know that you, that I want them to know that you died for their sins. And you did that so that they could be saved. I pray that they would come to know that one day. You just pray for them. Or how about this? Um, asking them if you can share your story with them. I mean, that's a very non-threatening way to begin the conversation, right? You're like, hey, I'm your friend. Could I just tell you a few things that God has done in my life and the difference that he's made? I was talking to a restaurant owner at our church this week who said that God has been getting a hold of her life. And she said, you know, I'm, I train a new set of employees. And she said, I've never done this before. But in the middle of training them, I just felt like I needed to give God glory for what he has done here at our restaurant And so I just stopped and I said, hey, I just want you guys to know that we treat other people around here the way that we think God's treated us. And the key to our love of excellence is the fact that God treated us excellently. And she says, I gave God glory. That's all I said. That's a beginning step toward boldness right there. Letter C, creating opportunities. That means sitting with a different group of people at lunch. It means inviting the coworker out to lunch. I mean, you don't have to hide your Bible behind your back when you go. You know, waiting for them to say the wrong thing and then pow, smack them in the face with it. That's not, I just mean taking them out and then looking for a chance for you to pray for them. Looking for a chance for you to tell your story. Maybe inviting them to read the Bible or to come to church with you. Or, or how about this one as a way of applying that and creating opportunities? How about when you go home, not just driving your car in the garage, shutting the door and going in for the rest of the evening? Right? I mean, I know what it's like. You come home, you see some of your neighbors that are out, you know, in their yards or whatever, and you're like, in the drugs, boom, shut down. That's it. Right? Your first baby step toward boldness could be maybe parking your car, walking back out, and just having a conversation. Because you're never going to be able to speak the word of God in people's lives if you don't know them. Right? So you just get to know people. Take it, create opportunities. Letter D, getting involved in the mission. Get involved. We'll train you if you get involved here. We will. By the way, you want a little dirty secret? You know why we try to get you on mission trips? We do love the mission field, and we want you to go overseas. But we know there's no better way to train you to share your faith than to send you overseas. So we got an ulterior motive. So we'll let you pay $2,500 or $1,500, however much it costs to go all the way overseas to learn what you really should be doing here, but for some reason it just works. 
You go as a missionary, you come back as an actual disciple. <laughs> that's our, that's our, our game plan. Just get it, go on one. All right, letter E, how about just asking God for boldness? That could be your first baby step toward boldness is just asking God to make you bold, right? That's a bold step to say, God, make me bold. I got a, um, I got a, a letter this week from one of our college students who told me, she said, um, she said, when I came here, I was a freshman at UNC Chapel Hill, and she said, I kept, I, immediately, I've been a Christian for a few years, so I joined the Christian bubble there at UNC Chapel Hill, because there's one everywhere. And she said, I got involved with um, the Christian friends. I felt very comfortable. It was natural. I loved it. It was easy. She said, but at the church, you kept talking about going out, and I didn't want to go out because I liked in. And so she said, I just kind of made my home. She said, but I just couldn't get away from this. She said, so never really shared my faith with anybody. She said, this summer I did the city project at the Summit Church, which is something we do for college students that really gives them like a 10-week kind of intensive mission experience. She said, I did that. By the way, there's a lot of groups inside us, Campus Crusade and others that do that, and they do it very well too. But she said, I did the city project. And she said, one of the things with the city project is she said, we had to share our faith nearly every stinking day. She said, and at first, when I would go with people to share their faith, I'm just like, why don't you talk? And she's like, you know, if I ever came to me, I'm like, please don't let them be home. Please don't let the person ask any questions. Please just let them take this and get out. She says, I just prayed against the evangelism encounter. She says, but eventually, she says, in, as these opportunities were there, she said, eventually, and she says, by the way, she says, at the same time, I'm reading the Bible. And she, she said, nothing of the city projects. We had to read the Bible every day. And she said, I started to read in 1 Corinthians, where Paul, who I considered to be, in your words, talking to me, a varsity Christian, she said, and Paul in 1 Corinthians 2 says that when he spoke to the people in Corinth, he spoke in weakness and with great fear and trembling. And she said, that's me. Paul is me. Because I speak with great weakness and fear and trembling. She said, yet he said his words were empowered with the Holy Spirit. She said, and then I read in 1 Corinthians where Paul said, I've been enriched in every way with all kinds of speech and with all kinds of knowledge. And she said, that was a promise I knew I could claim for myself. If God made Paul's weak words mighty, God can make my weak words mighty. So I ask God to fulfill this promise in my life. Since coming back to school this year, I've praised God for his favor because God has allowed me to lead three girls to Jesus Christ within the past month. Last week when one of the girls, by the way, who are probably listening right now at the Chapel Hill campus, well, last week when one of the girls told me that she was ready to trust Jesus as her Lord and Savior while she was praying to trust Christ, I was praying, God, why me? Why are you using me? This is definitely more than all I could ask or imagine. After completing the city project this summer, which every college student should seriously consider doing, she said, a little commercial, she said, learning to share my faith and going deeper into the promises that God has given us in his word, I've been more open to share the gospel with people on my campus. I know that my personal ability to share the gospel is insignificant because it is the Lord who's doing all the work through the Holy Spirit. In seeing these girls and other people on campus come to Christ, I'm reminded of the gospel and how I've done nothing to deserve God's love, yet he has freely lavished it upon me and through me to others. You see that? That's it. That's the whole package right there. Small step. Believing the word of God, looking to the Holy Spirit, and letting him do the work. We have a God in the Holy Spirit who loves to help. Just put yourself out there. Take that first step and watch what he does. Why don't you bow your heads with me, if you would, at all of our campuses. With your heads bowed, if you're not a Christian, 
You might be thinking this right now. This is why I don't like to come to church. Because you people are always trying to convert us. And now you're telling the church how they can convert me. You caught us. That's exactly what we're up to. But see, there's a reason that we do that, and that's because we believe that you were created by God, that he is your father, and that he loves you, and that he gave his son to bring you back to himself. And there's nothing that we would want more. We're not going to force it on you. We're going to try to obey the rules of social etiquette. But there is nothing that we would want more than to see you reconciled to God because that is the greatest gift that we could give you. Maybe if you're here and you're not a Christian, maybe you could just say to the person that's invited you, would you take me out right after this? Can we go sit down, have a cup of coffee, have a meal? And just tell me a little bit more about what this is all about because I'm confused and ask them your questions. You trusted them enough to come with them this weekend. Trust them enough to answer a couple of your other questions. You say, well, I'm nervous doing that. Well, they're nervous that I just told you to do that. So you're both nervous. Summit Church, where are you at with that? What's the Holy Spirit putting in your heart? What's your step to being bold this week? Father, there are some that you're going to take to the mission field. There are some who you're going to drive out into radical, crazy things that they're going to do in boldness to you. There are some, God, who are going to walk across the street and meet a neighbor walk across the room and invite a coworker out to lunch. Some who are going to simply tell a friend that they love them, they're praying for them, and ask if they can share their story. God, whatever it is, I pray that you would fill their hearts to be bold. God, make us a church that is so deeply saturated with the gospel that we become bold for the gospel. I pray in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name.